And the third day there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Many Catholics don't realize that on the Feast of the Epiphany, the Church actually places three mysteries before us. On that feast, the priest reminds the priests and religious, those of us who are bound to pray the official prayers of the Church, what we call the Divine Office, the Church reminds us of these three mysteries when we pray, and I quote, We keep this day holy in honor of three miracles. This day a star led the wise men to the manger. This day water was turned into wine at the marriage feast. This day Christ chose to be baptized by John in the Jordan for our salvation. Alleluia. Close quote. But because the church wants to draw our attention more perfectly to each of these three miracles, on January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany itself, we focus upon the revelation of Christ to the Gentile nations by the visit of the Magi. On January 13th, which is the octave of the Epiphany, we had it Friday, we celebrate the baptism of our Lord. And today, on the second Sunday after Epiphany, we celebrate the miracle of the turning of the water into wine. Today, we'll take a closer look at the first line in today's Gospel, just to bring to light a few of the details that we otherwise might not be aware of. And to do that, for the most part, we'll follow that great scriptural commentary uh, assembled from the works of the fathers by Father Cornelius de Lapide, who worked uh, in the late 1500s and early 1600s. As usual, uh, the quotes will be uh, cut-pasted and streamlined for the sake of the sermon, because he has far too much information to cover in a sermon. Cornelius de Lapide. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. The third day refers to the third day from the visit and conversion of Andrew and Peter. For on that day, Jesus began to gather disciples and to reveal himself to them. From that point onward, therefore, John computes this third day, on which our Lord plainly manifests himself to them, and shows that he is the Messiah by turning water into wine. Close quote. Now Cornelius Lapide, relying largely on the great historian of the church, Cardinal Baronius, as well as St. Epiphanius, is going to connect all this to our calendar. Quote, Here is the sequence of these days in the life of Christ. According to the tradition of the church and the fathers, on the Feast of the Epiphany, the day on which 30 years previously the Magi had been led by a star to worship Christ at Bethlehem, our Lord was baptized by John. Close quote. Okay, so according to the tradition of the Church and the Fathers, the Magi actually arrived in Bethlehem on January 6th. And then 30 years later on that same day, St. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Back to Cornelius the Lapide, who will now discuss what happened immediately after our Lord's baptism and exactly when he turned the water into wine. Quote, St. Epiphanius says that the marriage took place on the 60th day from Christ's baptism. After dinner, on the 6th of January, the same day that our Lord was baptized by John, he went into the desert where he fasted for 40 days. This fast thus began on the 7th of January and ended on the 15th of February. 
He then returned to Nazareth, where he stayed 15 days. St. Epiphanius says that immediately after this, the 56th day after his baptism, the Jews sent messengers to John the Baptist to ask him if he were the Christ or not. This took place on March 1st. John denied it and said that Jesus is the Christ. The next day, March 2nd, Jesus came to John, who pointed him out with his finger, saying, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sin of the world. On the following day, March 3rd, John repeated this testimony before two of his disciples, one of whom was Andrew. Hence they visited Jesus, and then Andrew brought his brother Peter to Christ. On March 4th, Jesus went into Galilee, where he called Philip. Since this was the second day from the coming of Andrew with his brother Peter to Christ, it must have been on the third day or March 5th when the wedding feast took place. Close quote. Okay, so we've seen that when our Lord had just turned 30 years old, he's baptized on January 6th, went out in the desert and fasted for 40 days. After he came back, he spent some time at home in Nazareth. On March 1st, St. John was asked if he were the Christ, said no. On March 2nd, St. John pointed our Lord, saying, uh, day, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who take away the sins of the world. March 3rd, St. John repeated this testimony before St. Andrew, another disciple. St. Andrew brings St. Peter to Christ. March 4th, our Lord calls St. Philip. March 5th, the 60th day after his baptism, he went to the wedding feast. Now Cornelius Lapidate raises the obvious question. Why does the church commemorate the miracle of the turning of the water into wine on the Feast of the Epiphany if it actually took place on March 5th? Quote, According to Baronius, St. Augustine, St. Maximus, and others, the church commemorates the miracle on that day, though it did not actually take place upon it, because the church wished to celebrate on the same Feast of the Epiphany, or Manifestation of Christ, the three miracles by which Christ first made himself manifest to the world. First, the rival and adoration of the Magi, who were led by a star. Second, the baptism of Christ, when the Father's voice was heard like thunder, This is my beloved Son. And third, the turning of the water into wine at Cana. The first two of these three miracles happened on the same day, that is, the 6th of January, whereas the third took place two months later, on March 6th. Close quote. So the reason we commemorate all three of these mysteries on the Feast of Epiphany, even though the water was actually turned into wine on March 5th, is because the whole point of the feast is to celebrate the manifestation of Christ to the world. Epiphany is a Greek word, which means manifestation. So the reason we commemorate all three of these mysteries together is because these are the three mysteries by which Christ first manifested himself to the world. And although we commemorate all this on Epiphany in the Divine Office, the Church wants to draw our attention more particularly to these mysteries, and so we have three separate days in which we focus on each one individually. January 6th, the Feast of Epiphany itself, we focus on the revelation of Christ to the Gentile nations when the Magi visit him. On the octave of the Epiphany, October 13th, we focus on the baptism of our Lord. And on the second Sunday of after Epiphany, today, we focus on the miracle of water turning into wine. Now Cornelius Lapde asks the question, 
Whose marriage was this, and who was the bridegroom? Quote, Baronius thinks that the bridegroom at this marriage was the apostle Simon, who was surnamed the Canaanite from Cana. Baronius adds that the place where the marriage was celebrated was adorned and ennobled by a famous church built there by St. Helena, the mother of Constantine the Great. As soon as Simon had seen this miracle of Christ at his wedding, he bade farewell to his bride in the world and followed him, who was chosen to be one of his twelve apostles. This was the reason why Christ came to this wedding, by coming, indeed, honored marriage. By calling him to himself, he declared that celibacy and the apostolate are more excellent than marriage. Close quote. So the bridegroom was St. Simon the Canaanite, sometimes also known as St. Simon the Zealot, because as soon as he'd seen the miracle of the water turning into wine, he became a zealous follower of Christ. The Catholic Encyclopedia points out that this name does not mean that St. Simon belonged to the party of zealots, but that he was full of zeal. And the mother of Jesus was there. Quote, she was invited as a friend by those who were celebrating the marriage. There is no mention of Joseph in this place, nor subsequently, for he was now dead, as St. Epiphanius, Baronius, and others state. Close quote. Thus Cornelius Elapide. So we've taken a closer look at his commentary on one line from the inspired and inerrant word of God. And on the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. But there's one term in this line from the Holy Gospels that Quinnius at Apodee didn't bother to explain. In fact, it wouldn't have even occurred to him that it might need an explanation. But in this present darkness, the confusion about the true meaning of this term is really so deep and so widespread, it's just global. The confusion is so bad about this one term that we can't let it pass without an explanation. The term, of course, is marriage. Marriage. What exactly is marriage? Before we turn to the correct definition, by way of contrast, let's take a quick look at the so-called definition used by the Federal District Court for the Northern District of California. In the Perry v. Schwarzenegger decision, the court produced this so-called definition, and I quote, Marriage is the state recognition and approval of a couple's choice to live with each other, to remain committed to one another, and to form a household based on their own feelings about one another, and to join in an economic partnership and support one another in any dependence. Close quote. Now, I'm not sure what level of hell uh, this, this, this so-called definition was vomited out of, but it's insane. Marriage is not the state recognition and approval of a choice of a couple's, uh, or a, of a couple's choice to live together, to remain committed to one another, and to form a household based on their own feelings about one another. That is not what marriage is. But insanity didn't end there. A lot of the crazier points in this decision I can't read from the pulpit. But here, with some obvious editing, are a few more gems gleaned from that marvelous decision. I quote, The movement of marriage away from a gendered institution and towards an institution free from state-mandated gender roles reflects an evolution in the understanding of gender 
rather than a change in marriage? Well, no, it doesn't. Marriage hasn't moved from a gender, away from a gendered institution and towards an institution free of state-mandated gender roles. Marriage hasn't moved at all. The movement of so-called legal rulings from a basis in reality towards a basis in perversity reflects a lack of understanding of basic concepts and advancing corruption in our society. Back to the decision. Gender, this is a quote, gender no longer forms an essential part of marriage. Gender no longer forms an essential part of marriage. This is like the court ruling. The triangles no longer have three sides. Or squares no longer have four sides. It's insanity. Back to the ruling. Modified. San Francisco couples are identical to true couples in the characteristics relevant to the ability to form successful marital unions. San Francisco couples are identical to true couples in the characteristics relevant to the ability to form successful marital unions. Ah, yes, and black is white and up, and up is down and the moon is made out of green cheese. This is the level of American jurisprudence these days. It's insane. It's just insane. Unfortunately, this insanity isn't limited to our beloved country. It's becoming a global phenomenon, which is why this past Monday, while speaking to the diplomats assigned to the Holy See, our Holy Father addressed this issue. Pope Benedict XVI, quote, The family, based on the marriage of a man and a woman, is not a simple social convention, but rather the fundamental cell of every society. Consequently, policies which undermine the family threaten human dignity and the future of humanity itself. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. Now just stop and think about this. We have now reached the point in the history of the world when the Vicar of Christ, the Holy Father, our Pope, actually has to tell diplomats around the world, he has to instruct them that the family is based on the marriage of a man and a woman and is not a simple social convention, but the fundamental cell of every society. And that policies which undermine the family threaten the future of humanity itself. We are so far gone that the Pope now needs to tell the world that the family based on the marriage of a man and a woman is not a simple social convention. Okay, so we've seen what marriage is not. Let's pause and see what marriage actually is. Marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. Marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. If a man and a woman freely make this contract, then God makes the relationship. They consent to be man and wife, and then God makes them so. And it doesn't matter 
if they believe in God. It doesn't matter if they know who he is. If they make the contract, God makes the relationship. So what's the marriage contract? The contract which a man and woman make, the contract which they both consent to in order to enter into the relationship of marriage is very clear. Here is the traditional definition of the marriage contract. A man and a woman give and accept perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. A man and a woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. If it's properly made, in other words, if it's validly made, this contract results in the relationship known as marriage. If they validly make the contract, God makes the relationship, and this is true whether or not they believe in God. So marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. Again, in a marriage, a man and a woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children, and God attaches a consequence to this contract. If a man and woman validly make this contract, then the two of them become more closely related than a brother is to his sister or a father is to his son. And that relationship is made directly by God. Marriage is most definitely not the state recognition and so-called approval of a couple's choice to live with one another, to remain committed to one another, and to form a household based on their own feelings about one another. That's not marriage. Let's take just a moment to consider the different aspects of the contract. Both partners to the marriage contract agree to the contract. That's why weddings work the way they do. The man and the woman are each asked if they agree to the contract, and each one must answer freely of his own accord. There are two witnesses to the contract on behalf of society. and In a Catholic marriage, the priest is there on behalf of the church. So there's two witnesses for the society and one for the church in a Catholic marriage. Precisely because it is a contract, if the contract is not properly executed, no relationship will result. If the contract is not validly made, God does not make the relationship. This would be where annulment fits in. An authentic annulment is a result of a couple not making a valid contract. For example, in order to validly contract marriage, Catholics must either be married according to the canonical form, in the parish, the priest, the two witnesses, and so forth, or have a dispensation. So, if, Now, we're not talking about Protestants, and we're not talking about uh, any non-Christians here, only Catholics. So if Catholics attempt to get married before a justice of the peace, the contract isn't properly made, which means that the relationship not only didn't come into being, it couldn't come into being. It's a contract between a man and a woman. God only created two sexes, 
Male and female, he created them. And it takes one of each to make a marriage. The term perpetual indicates the marriage contract results in a relationship with a specific condition that each partner yields marital rights perpetually. That shows the indissolubility of the relationship. And this right lasts for exactly one lifetime, till death do us part. Marriage is perpetual. Quote, A declaration by the state that a husband and wife are no longer husband and wife, a declaration, that is, of divorce, is a mere form of words. The state can say that it has broken the marriage bond between two people, but it has not broken it. During the lifetime of the parties, they remain husband and wife, because that is of the nature of marriage as ordained by God. The failure to understand this teaching of the Catholic Church has given rise to much quite irrelevant argument. Those who urge the Church should grant, or at any way permit divorce, always do so on the ground that in certain cases it is desirable. But to urge that a thing is desirable is no answer to a statement that it is impossible. And that is the precise truth. As a practical matter resulting from its being God-made, marriage is not indissoluble just because the parties at their wedding made vows of lifelong fidelity. It is indissoluble because it is marriage. Close quote Frank Sheet. Marriage lasts till death. The relationship resulting from this contract is exclusive. The rights are exclusive, which means that each partner yields the marital rights exclusively to the other partner, which shows the unity of the relationship. In other words, only one man and only one woman. No polygamy, none of this Henry VIII action. He doesn't get to keep traitor in on new model. This is it. He gave his word before the altar, and God's going to hold him to it. Period. Close the book. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is a contract by which the man and woman give and accept the right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. There are limits. The acts must be of themselves suitable for the generation of children. No contraception, no sterilization, no refusal of a reasonable request. He gave his body away to his spouse before the altar, and it's no longer his to take back, and vice versa. Okay, so why have we hammered on this term marriage? To make sure that at least everyone here has a solid grasp, solid grasp on exactly what marriage is. When the Pope has to start explaining this concept to a lot of highly educated diplomats, you know that we've got a problem. Let's review. Today we've seen that when our Lord had just turned 30 years old, he was baptized on January 6th, the same day that 30 years before the three kings had visited him in the manger. After his baptism, he went into the desert and fasted for 40 days. After he came back, he spent some time at home in Nazareth. On March 1st, Jews asked St. John the Baptist if he were the Christ. He said no. 
March 2nd, St. John pointed out our Lord. Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sins of the world. On March 3rd, St. John repeated this before St. Andrew and another disciple. And then St. Andrew went and brought his brother St. Peter to Christ. On March 4th, our Lord called St. Philip. And on March 5th, the 60th day from his baptism, he went to the wedding feast. We've seen the reason that we commemorate these three mysteries on the Feast of the Epiphany, even though the water was turned into wine on March 5th, is because the whole point of the feast is to celebrate the manifestation of Christ the world. We've seen that Epiphany means manifestation. So the reason we celebrate them all together is because these are the three miracles by which Christ first made himself manifest to the world. We've seen that the bridegroom was the apostle St. Simon the Canaanite, also known as St. Simon the Zealot, so-called because as soon as he had seen the miracle of the water turning into wine, he became a zealous follower of Christ. And we've seen that marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. In the marriage contract, a man and a woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. God attaches a consequence to making this contract. If the man and the woman validly make this contract, then the two become related to each other closer than a brother is to his sister, closer than a mother is to her daughter, in a relationship that's made directly by God. Let's close. With anyone, with even a lick of biblical understanding, it's easy to see why it's going to be a fire and not a flood this time. And the people promoting these so-called marriages use a rainbow like they're going to be safe. We need to pray.